right, well, good morning, church. How are you guys? Good. Well, the last time I was up here, I called you all old, so I promise not to do that again this morning. We're not going to be in Ecclesiastes. We are in the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 23. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I've got a lot to do, a lot to say before we get there, a lot of setup, but uh, that's where we're going to be, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Uh, my name's Jonathan. If we've not met yet, I work with our middle school, high school, and college students here. My wife is Mason, and if we've not met before, I would love uh, the chance to get to meet you and to get to know you. Uh, Jeff, thank you uh, for the opportunity to speak and thank you for the opportunity that you guys as a church family have given me. You guys have been very gracious uh, with me over the last three years and I'm thankful uh, for the chance that I have this morning to open God's word with you and for you and it is an honor. So I just want to thank you before we go any further. But this morning we're talking about a life that is centered on Christ. And so as we think about a life that's centered on Christ, the first thing that comes to my mind in this passage is fundamentals, right? At everyone at one point and everything, be it athletics or music or education or some of you that are competitive eaters, your competitive eating or your eating in general, whatever it is, we all had to begin with the basics. We had to start somewhere, right? You have to sit up before you can crawl, you have to crawl before you can walk, and you have to walk before you can run. And I really don't understand how babies work because I'm not a dad, but I don't think that babies come out of the womb ready to run. Am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> no. There's a lot of work that's got to be done, right? No baby comes out of the womb ready to run on day one. Well, Michael Jordan did not wake up one day and immediately become the best or the second best, depending on who you ask, to play the game of basketball. At one point, Michael was not the best. He had to learn the fundamentals of the game of basketball. He had to learn how to shoot. He had to learn how to dribble. He had to learn how to pass. And he needed to master these things before he could progress any further to becoming the best. For those of you that don't like athletics, uh, Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, some of the best to ever play guitar, didn't immediately pick up the guitar and become the best to ever play. It took a lot of hard work, a lot of time put in with scales, a lot of time developing an incredible grasp on the fundamentals of music and of playing guitar before they could play the way that they did. There's a guy, his name's David Nurse. He's a motivational speaker and a former shooting coach in the NBA. And he tells a story about getting invited to watch the Golden State Warriors practice one day. And uh, he was super excited because uh, this was during the season that they had posted the best record in the NBA. And as a shooting coach, he wanted to go and he wanted to learn, what are they doing that I can take back to my team and help them do as well? And so he was super excited. They were a totally dominant team that played the game better than anyone else. And so he was hopeful to go pick up some great drills that he could bring back to his team and say, hey, look, it's good enough for the Warriors. It's good enough for us. And so it was his, to his surprise that at that practice that day that he attended, they ran nothing but drills that focused and highlighted the fundamentals of the game. They ran passing drills and shooting drills and dribbling drills, and they ran them to perfection. That's it. Nothing fancy. They perfected the fundamentals. And so the reality is, is that if we want to master anything, that we really just need to master and perfect the fundamentals. The word fundamental means forming a necessary base or a necessary core. So a solid foundation, a solid core, a solid base is necessary in any and everything that we wish to succeed in. And the same is true in the life of a follower of Jesus, the life of a Christian. If we wish to master the life or the Christian life and master following Jesus, then we have to focus on the fundamentals. 
But here's the thing, our fundamentals are not passing drills or shooting drills or rule following or scales. Our fundamental for the follower or the fundamental for a follower of Jesus is a person, Jesus. So this morning we're looking at a life that's centered on Christ and the big truth, the main takeaway, whatever you want to call it, is this. The fundamental, the base of everything that we base the Christian life on, the fundamental of being a follower of Christ is being focused on the person of Jesus Christ. That's the base. We've got to perfect that before we can move on to anything else. Jesus Christ is the point. And I know this main idea might feel like a cop-out. It might feel like, okay, that's a really lame main idea. Like, I got up this morning, got my family, got everyone ready, got out the door. We fought all the way here, so it's a big deal. We came to church just for someone to tell me that Jesus is the point. But that's the point. (laughs) Jesus is the point, always and forever and will forever always be the point. And the minute that we stop thinking that he's the point, we've lost it. I think more often than we realize, our eyes are turned away from Jesus and are turned towards the things of this world. And so we must constantly be reminded and remind ourselves about who Jesus is. And so this morning, we're in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I want to set the stage because context is key. If we don't understand what's going on, then we're not going to know. Uh, We're not going to apply God's word rightly and correctly. And we're jumping in to the middle of the book of Colossians. So I want to try and set the stage for you Well, and it's going to take me just a second to do that, so just bear with me. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and he wrote to the church at Colossae, which is in and around what is now modern-day Turkey. And he wrote to Colossae without ever actually going to Colossae. Unlike other churches that Paul wrote to, uh, he did not help start the church at Colossae. A man named Epaphras, who is mentioned several times throughout the letter, is credited with having a large role in starting the church. So that's significant. Paul did not start this church. Colossae at one point uh, was a large Roman megacity, but because of some changing and some trade routes, it led to uh, them becoming less prominent and Laodicea, which is also mentioned in the letter, blowing up and becoming a large megacity as well. And so being a Roman city, Colossae would have been full of mainly Gentiles, which is just anybody that's not a Jew, right? But we also know that there was a Jewish population that lived in Colossae. And so this intermingling of Gentile and Jew led to uh, unique challenges, just like it did anywhere else. But in this case, uh, there was a certain false teaching that came about that we know as the Colossian heresy. And this is a false teaching that came up in the church of Colossae. And the Colossian heresy was essentially just a blending of Jewish legalism or rule following with pagan mysticism or just an heightened emphasis on spirituality and spiritual things. And so the heresy probably would have followed something along these lines. I think this is really easy for us to remember. It's on the screen. It's Jesus plus blank equals salvation. This is what the church in Colossae, the false teachers, were teaching the church. They were saying things like, hey, Jesus is essential, but you also need to keep the Sabbath in order to gain your salvation. They would say things like, hey, Jesus is essential, but you also need to worship these angels and do these spiritual things. And they would say things like, Jesus is essential, but unless you're keeping this diet, you're really not doing it the right way. The Colossian heresy was full of half-truths because the false teachers were not denying Christ at all. They were not denying that Christ was necessary for salvation. Instead, they added to Christ and made other things also necessary for salvation. If the false teachers had come in and declared that Jesus Christ was not necessary for salvation, the church probably would have immediately identified it as an untruth. 
But the same is true of us. If someone come in, comes in and tells us to deny Jesus Christ as Lord and worship an idol, we recognize that immediately as untruth. But when someone tells us that Jesus Christ is necessary, but you've also got to keep this set of rules, that doesn't sound too harmful, right? Jesus is necessary, but I also have something that I've got to do. Or Jesus is necessary, so I, but I also need to keep this diet we're much more likely to follow that untruth because it does not deny Christ and the necessity of his work. It does not, at a surface level, seem like a bad thing to say that Jesus Christ plus something else equals salvation. But church family, we have a Jesus plus nothing faith. Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation. So don't take away from the finished work of Christ by adding to it. And that's what the Colossian teachers were doing. They were adding to the finished work of Christ, and they said Jesus plus, but we know Jesus plus nothing. Salvation is the work of Christ in Christ alone, not Christ plus anything else. So it's in light of this Colossian heresy, this Jesus plus, that Paul writes one of the most deeply and uniquely uh, Christ-centered letters in all of the New Testament. His point is to help the Colossian church to turn their eyes off of all these untruths and turn their eyes to Jesus and who he is. And so we get passages like Colossians 1, 15 through 23. I love this passage, so I hope you love it too. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's not, if you're not, it's on the screen. I want you to notice how many times this morning I say the word he. <laughs> so it says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent or superior for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven by making peace by the blood of his cross my favorite verses in all of scripture right here verses 21 through 22 and you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and faultless before him. Woo! That's good. It's all about him, but then he loves us. That's the point. He writes these things because he wants the Colossian church to fall deeply in love with Jesus Christ. And he wants them to put their minds and their eyes on him and not on the untruth. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2. Paul is trying to show the Colossian church that Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things, including salvation. So don't be tempted to believe anything else. And the other thing is that he's trying to show the Colossian church that Jesus Christ is what they must remain focused on throughout their entire lives, even after their salvation. So, Colossians 2. Verses 6 through 23. If you have your Bibles, this is not on the screen. So I would encourage you to put your eyes on it and see it. And we're going to read Colossians 2, 6 through 23. It says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. 
In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that's from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that we have the chance now to read it and God, to go deep into it. And so God, I pray for myself right now that my words would fall away and that yours would remain. God, would you meet with us? Because if you don't meet with us, then nothing happens. So Lord, we love you and it's your son's name. We pray all these things. Amen. I have two points for you this morning. The first one's way longer than the second one, okay? The first point is Christ-centered living. We're talking about what it means to live a life that's centered on Christ. And so we begin in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, and it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's in these two verses that the entire heart of the letter is seen. Some people call this the, the heart of the letter, verses 6 and 7. So Paul's desire for the Colossian church is to not be swayed by untruths or by false teachings, and rather he desires for the Colossian church to fixate their eyes on Jesus Christ and remain in him. And so if we're talking about a life that's centered on Christ, since that's the heart of the letter, right, then in verse 6 we understand that Paul is calling us to walk in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, for me, walking is not a passive activity. I actually have to move, and I assume it's the same for you. As you walk, you actually move, right? There, there's some movement there. You've got to move your legs. You've got to move your arms. There's movement as you walk. It's not passive. And so just as we received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Move in him. To walk in Christ means that there's growth, that there's a progression from one point to another point, that there's action, if you're walking, you're obviously not sitting, right? That's passive. We're not called to sit in Christ. We're called to walk, continue in Christ. There's action, there's movement. So are you walking with Christ? Are you moving? Are you progressing in the faith? Are you passively sitting by? Oftentimes I think that we believe this about the Christian life, that we pray a prayer, we turn our eyes to Jesus for salvation, but then we think it's necessary for us to turn our focus onto more spiritual things, things like following the rules or things like seeking emotional experiences or understanding higher level doctrines. But church family, it's all Jesus, all the time. That's it. 
That's the fundamental. So walk in him, rooted, built up, established in the faith. Another translation says it this way. They say, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him. And these words, rooted and built up, when we, let's take, take them two separately. So we're going to talk about rooted first. We're going to talk about built up in him in just a second. But the idea of being rooted should make us think of like a plant or a tree, right? Root systems are where pl- like plants all have root systems. They go far down into the ground. We don't see them, but they're there, right? The root system is probably the most important part of a plant or the most important part of a tree. Because the root system of a tree or a plant is where the plant soaks in the nutrients that it's needed for its growth and for its own preservation, right? Yes, leaves and all that sort of stuff have to do with their growth, but the roots are where it gets its nutrients, The root system of a tree is also what keeps the tree or the plant from blowing over easily when storms come. We have storms and wind that come about all the time, and we don't see trees that get blown over all the time. It's a rare occurrence, right? When it happens, it's a big deal. That's because of its roots. Its roots are strong and sturdy, and so if there's no roots, a tree would blow over at the smallest amount of wind. So the deeper and wider the roots are in the ground, the more stable the tree is and the healthier the tree is, right? Well, the same is true for us. Our roots are essential. Our roots are where we soak in the nutrients that we need for our growth. Our roots are where we preserve ourselves. And our root systems keep us from being blown about by everything that comes our way and keeps us upright in the midst of storms of life. So what are you rooted in? What are you rooted in? Are you rooted in the broken cisterns of life yourself? Are you rooted in yourself? Are you rooted in your family? Are you rooted in your friends or materials or jobs? What are you rooted in? These things will never truly satisfy you. They'll leave you wanting more. They'll leave you being blown about by the storms of life. We make terrible gods. People do. Jobs do. To live a life that's centered on Christ, we must be deeply rooted in him. We must be fed by the truths of him, and we must be nourished by who he says we are. But then the words built up should also make us think, makes me think of at least a house. A house is built from the ground up. You lay a foundation, then the walls go up, and then the roof, and then all the trimmings of the house, right? You got the HVAC, the electrical, the plumbing, the windows, the doors, the drywall. I've never built a house, so I'm just kind of going off the top of my head what I think you do when you build a house. But I do know this about building a house. You build a house on a bad foundation, and it's going to crumble, Right? You got foundation problems, and that's a big, big deal. The follower of Jesus must be built on a solid foundation. And the most solid foundation is Jesus Christ himself. Otherwise, when the storms of life come, when untruths approach us, we will collapse. If our life is built on following rules, what happens when you don't follow the rules one time? Everything that you built collapses. What happens if your life is built on the emotional worship experiences that you've had? What happens when you no longer have those? Your life collapses. You're not rooted. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
Church family, if we're not rooted in Christ, we're not rooted in the rock, then we're like the people who build our lives on the sand. And when untruths come, when anything comes that threatens to threatens what we believe and know is true, we will fall and we will, and great will the fall be. As a follower of Jesus, our lives must be centered on Christ. Our lives must be rooted in Christ. Our, our lives must be based and built on Christ. Otherwise, we will be rocked and our worlds will be shattered when storms come and when untruths approach us. Jesus is the center of the life of a Christian, or at least he should be. So I ask you, is Jesus the center of your life? Or is he an additive, a secondary focus, but not the one on who your whole life is built? Really evaluate yourself. Is your life built on Christ or is it a secondary additive? Something you just kind of add and pepper in to salt, to taste. Like I just need a little bit of Jesus here, a little bit of Jesus here, not a lot over here. After encouraging the church of Colossae to remain focused on Jesus, he tells them what they should not be taken captive by in, uh, rather than Christ in verse 8. And it says this, it's on the screen. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's telling the church, don't be taken captive by philosophy. And a lot of people think that Paul is attacking philosophy here, but really this idea of philosophy just means man-made ideas, right? So don't be taken captive by man-made ideas, or by religion, or by spirituality. So really what Paul is saying is do not be taken captive by man-made ideas, religion, or spirituality. Instead, be captivated or kidnapped and carried away by Jesus Christ. Because that, that word, captivated, be taken captive, let no one take you captive, means to be kidnapped and carried away. So what Paul is saying is allow Jesus Christ to take you captive, to kidnap you, to carry you away from all these other things. And don't allow yourself to be kidnapped by untruths and man-made ideas and religion and spirituality. And so then after telling them what to not be captivated by, he launches into, again, this is probably my second favorite passage in all of Scripture, verses 9 through 15. He launches into an explanation for why we should be captivated by Christ rather than rules, man-made ideas, and spirituality in verses 9 through 15. Again, take note how often Paul uses the words, him. It says this, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, you ready for this? I think there should be a lot of woos and a lot of amens after this. I'm not going to lie. So here you go. Ready? Verse 13, love it, I love this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Woo! That's woo. Together with him by forgiving us all of our trespasses. Again, that's another woo. We're forgiven all of our trespasses, church family. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Woo! That's another woo. That's another woo. This he set aside. This he nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Woo! That was good. I wasn't expecting that one. That was a good one. So why should we remain captivated by him? Why should we remain captivated by Jesus Christ? Why should we center our lives on him? You ready? 
Because in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning that the entire nature of God is dwelling bodily inside of Jesus Christ. If we want to see God, we look to Christ. Because while in other places of scripture, we see portions of God's nature and portions of who he is, in Christ, we see the full picture. That's also good. And that same Jesus, who is fully God, he fills us. God himself. And that same Jesus who fills us, who is, who is fully God, is the head of all things. There's not one ruler, there's not one authority figure that's outside the headship of Jesus Christ. Whether they want to be or don't want to be, everything is, there's not one thing that's outside of his control. And that same Jesus who has the full nature of God and who fills us and is the head of all rulers and authorities has circumcised our hearts and given us a new heart. The Old Old Testament circumcision was a physical removal of skin, but the new circumcision done by Christ is done without skin. Jesus cuts away our sinful flesh of our hearts and makes us brand new. If you're in Christ, what that means this morning, if you follow Jesus, that means you're a new creation. But not only does that Jesus circumcise us with the circumcision done without hands, he buries us with him and he raises us with him. If we're in Christ, you ready? We will die. But we will also rise. And that's good news. Romans 8, 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you in you. If you're in Christ, you're going to rise again. So Jesus, who is fully God, who fills us, who is the head of all things, who circumcises our hearts, who raises up with him like in baptism, also does this. While we were dead in our trespasses or offenses or sins, and we were in our sinful flesh, God made us alive. Who made us alive? God. Did you make yourself alive? No. Did your mother or your brother or your father or your grandmother or your grandfather, whoever make you alive? No. Who made you alive? God. God made you alive. Our salvation is not dependent on ourselves. It's based on Jesus Christ. It's dependent on God and his kindness. And I don't know about you, but I need my salvation to not be based on me. So how did God make us alive? I'm really glad you asked because Paul's going to tell us. He says this, by forgiving us all of our offenses. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're forgiven. If Christ is in you, you're forgiven. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin he condemned sin in flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so church family if you're in Christ that means right now you're uncondemned before God that's that's right now <laughs> When God looks at you, he no longer sees you. He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
my grandfather was telling me this story last night, or two nights ago, I think it was last night. He was talking about a John Grisham novel, and I don't know anything about John Grisham. But he was telling me this story. It's one of the only nonfiction books that he's ever written. It's called The Innocent Man or something like that. And uh, there was a, a, a group of men who had been wrongly convicted of murdering uh, a woman. And they spent years of their life in prison. They spent years of their life in prison wrongly convicted for a murder that they did not commit. And years later, after they'd spent years in prison, they finally understood what DNA was and how they could understand, okay, if I find this fingerprint, I can, you know, lift this and understand this is what, this was not who did this crime because this DNA doesn't match this DNA. Does that make sense? So my grandfather called me and he was like, Jonathan, I'm just amazed by DNA. I was like, okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean, though? <laughs> and he said, Jonathan, what allowed these men to be set free? It was their DNA. It was who they are. And if we're in Christ, our DNA is brand new. <laughs> so we're set free. <laughs> and they were set free. They went, they went and lived the rest of their lives. And I was like, Poppy, that's really going to have to use that, man. Our DNA is brand new. <laughs> And we stand uncondemned before God right now because we are completely different people. We were guilty. We actually committed the sin. We actually did it. But our DNA's changed. But God not only made us alive by forgiving us our sins, he canceled the record of debt that we had with all of its legal demands. And the legal demand for our trespasses, for our offenses, and for our sins was death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages or the earnings of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we earned death. That's what we deserve. That's what we earned. But he cancels it all out. And the record of our wrongs is gone, and he gives us a brand new life, and he set it all aside. That record of wrongs? He set it all aside and he nailed it to his son, Jesus Christ, who is perfection in our place. He set the record of our wrongs, the debt that we owed, and he nailed it on the cross of Jesus Christ. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. God put them to open shame and God triumphed over them in Christ. So why should we be captivated by Jesus? Why should we center our lives on him? Because in Christ we're made full. In Christ we have freedom from sin. In Christ we're made alive. In Christ we're forgiven. In Christ, we're made holy, faultless, and blameless before a holy, holy, holy God who requires perfection. That's why we center our lives on him, because he did all that for us. The center of a Christian's life should be Christ alone, because he's the one who accomplished all things on our behalf. Christ is not what we focus on to begin our Christian lives, and then we move on to higher level doctrines and higher uh, or more religious rule following. So I want you to hear what I'm saying as I go into this next point, okay? Yes, we are called to be holy. And yes, we should be striving in obedience to God's word. And yes, we should seek to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. But if Christ is not the center of our lives as we do these things, they're not acts of obedience, they're acts of self-reliance. Jesus is not the diving board that we jump off into into the Christian life. Jesus is the diving board and the pool. He's all of it. <laughs> Living a life centered on Christ is not easy. There are many things that distract us, many things that captivate us rather than Christ. And some of them aren't necessarily bad. They're just things that add to the finished work of Christ rather than relying on Christ alone. 
And the Colossian church knows this, and that's why he wrote the letter to encourage them to remain captivated on Christ in the first place. And so the second thing I want you to see this morning are the threats to a living a Christ-centered life. And Paul mentions these in verses 16 through 23. In this passage, I'm not going to read 16 through 23. I'm going to break it down as we go. I've already read it once. I'm going to break it down as we go. But in this passage, Paul highlights essentially three threats to living a life that's centered on Christ. Are there more? Absolutely. Yes, there are way more than just these three. But these are the three that Paul mentions right now for the Colossian church. The first one is legalism or religious rule following. And we see this in verses 16 and 17. The second one is spiritualism or just uh, emotional experience seeking. We see this in verses 18 and 19. And then finally, asceticism, which is just discipline of the body. And we see this in verses 20 through 23. So let's look at verses 16 and 17 where Paul speaks of legalism as a threat to living a life that's completely centered on Jesus Christ. It says this, Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done for you, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he starts by hitting uh, legalists. He begins by hitting on the religious rule followers. And so he says in questions of diet or in the celebrations of certain holidays or in keeping the Sabbath, let no one judge you. And these three things refer to rules that the followers of Jesus might have been tempted to adhere to strictly at the cost of centering their lives totally on Jesus Christ. They wouldn't have denied Christ, but they would have added to Christ by saying, well, yes, Jesus is necessary, but I'm also supposed to keep the Sabbath day. Or yes, Jesus is necessary, but I'm also supposed to follow this diet and I'm not supposed to drink that and I can drink this and I gotta wash my hands at this certain time. The temptation would have been for them to center their lives on the diet and the celebration and the rule following rather than Christ. And so legalism just means an excessive adherence to a law or to a formula. And if we look as an example back to the New Testament, the Pharisees were very legalistic. We all know the Pharisees. If you've been in church for a long time, we know the Pharisees are legalistic. And while the outside of the Pharisees seemed clean, the inside was dead and dying. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 25 through 27. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. What Jesus says here is that it's a heart problem more than an action problem. You can change your behaviors, you can modify them all day long, but if your heart's not in the right place, it doesn't matter. Now, don't hear, again, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you're not called to pursue holiness. You are. We are. God calls us to this in Leviticus and in 1 Peter, among other places, in different ways. But rule following without the heart change that Jesus brings and without the focus being on Jesus is a futile exercise in self-piety or religiosity. We like to follow the rules and we like to force others to follow the set of rules because they're measurable and they're attainable. We can measure how good we are and how good someone else is based on the rules that we set. We can judge how good we are and how good someone else is based on how good of a job they do at keeping the rules that we made up. And if we're not careful, we can slip into self-reliance as we prioritize those rules. Very few of us in this room would deny that Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, but how many of us squirm in our seats when I say that Jesus Christ alone, alone is necessary for salvation, not Jesus Christ plus your religious rule following. Not Jesus Christ plus the rules that you're enforcing and that you're subconsciously also placing on other people. 
Legalism is a threat to living a life that's centered on Christ because with legalism, there's the temptation to believe that we can be good enough on our own. And we can't. Who made us alive? God. Legalism's not an old idea. It's a modern-day issue as well. It doesn't only refer to the washing of hands or the cleansing of pots and pans. It comes out for us in different ways than it did for the Colossian church, though, right? Yes, it does. So let, let me remind you that Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Our best efforts to be perfect are still full of sin because we're sinful people. So don't be pursued or don't be deceived into pursuing legalism instead of Christ because it threatens our ability to live a life that's truly centered on Christ. The next thing that Paul hits in verse 18, it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that's from God. The false teachers in the Colossian church were going on and on about visions that they were having, and they were telling the church that they needed to also have those visions, that they needed to also worship those angels. And they told the church that if they didn't have these visions, that if they didn't have these experiences with spiritual things, then they're not actually followers of Christ. Believers may have spiritual experiences of varying kind. Experience and emotions of themselves are not evil. But when we try to make our experience or our emotion the standard for all believers, or when we measure our own or someone else's spirituality on the basis of that experience, we're actually being arrogant and unspiritual. So for example, let's say this morning that worship was just really great, whatever that actually means, because worship isn't for us, it's for Jesus. But for the sake of the example, let's say that worship was just really, really great, right? It was so great, in fact, that you even cried. You lifted up your hands. It was great. Phenomenal right? Nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing. It's not a bad thing. You had an experience. You had a moment. That's a good thing. It's not necessarily bad at all. But the problem with our emotional experiences during worship comes in when you begin to think that you must be a better Christian that is more in tune with God because you lifted your hands and someone else didn't. This is what Paul is kind of talking about here. The problem with your emotional experience is when you begin to gauge your standing with God based on your emotions and your spiritualism that you feel in the moment rather than Christ. So just like with legalism, spiritualism and the seeking of emotional experience and the seeking of emotional highs can be a threat to Christ-centered living because we emphasize the emotion and the experience over Christ. Rather than seeking Christ, we seek that feeling, we seek that emotion that we had that one time, and it becomes a threat to us remaining focused on Christ as we pursue that experience and that emotion again. The last threat that Paul addresses is asceticism, or severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, and it's in verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism is a rigid control of everything about who we are. 
So when I think of asceticism, I think of bodybuilders, right? They have to be very disciplined in their training regimen. Uh, they need to train certain muscle groups on certain days and in certain ways to make it look a certain way. They need to do it for so long. Uh, they must not deny the importance of their diet. They've got to eat the right things all the time. They've got to watch what they put into, into their bodies or it's all for nothing. They've got to get the right amount of sleep and the right amount of water intake. And they've got to get the right amount of cardio and not too much because it's going to negate everything that you did. But you've got to have a little bit, right? These bodybuilders are very, very, very disciplined people when it comes to their physique and their stature because they have to be in order to maintain that physique, in order to maintain that stature. And sometimes as followers of Jesus, we take this bodybuilder mentality to our lives and we feel like we have to control everything, every area, and maintain perfection in every area in order to keep our status with God. But Paul says to this idea, no, you died with Christ. You don't have to maintain perfection. Christ died in your place on your behalf and now credits his perfection to you. So our standing with God is not dependent on us, it's dependent on Christ and Christ alone. So these things, legalism, spiritualism, and discipline all seem to be wise, but they're really just a practice in man-made religion. These things don't keep us from sin. They do not make us fool. Christ does. So in other words, all this external performance, legalism, spiritualism, and severe self-discipline has no effect on our internal urges. Alexander McLaren, he's a Scottish Baptist pastor who lived in the 1800s, he said, there's only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal that's within us, and that's the power of the indwelling Christ. When Jesus is given control, he not only gives us the Holy Spirit to fight against the flesh, but he gives us new desires as well. So we don't need rules for the outside because we have the Spirit on the inside. We simply just need to yield to him. So then in light of this text this morning, here's what I think the application is. Two points. For the follower of Jesus, I think our application is to reflect on a regular basis on the essential truths that keep Jesus central. He's the point. And we often forget, so let's remind ourselves often and be reminded often of Jesus Christ. And what are those two truths? One, that Jesus is fully God and nothing needs to be added to him. Two, that you have fullness in him and nothing needs to be added to you. No rules, no motion, no severe self-discipline, Christ. That's all that needs to be added to you. And then the second point of application for the follower of Jesus is be, be captivated by him. Turn your eyes to him. For the person who doesn't follow Jesus, your application point's the same. Be captivated by Jesus. I know that Christianity gets a bad rap a lot of times from religious rule followers, from hypocrites, whatever. And that's on us. We own that. But if you don't follow Jesus, I would tell you not to look at me, but to look at Jesus. Because he's the point. Fall in love with him. Give yourself permission to fall in love with Jesus Christ. So I hope this morning that if anything has occurred during this time, that you're reminded of your need to turn your eyes to Jesus, church family. He's the point. Center your lives on him. Live a life centered on him. So I'm going to invite Chip and the band to go ahead and come on up, and I'm going to read the lyrics to the song that we're about to sing. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you, we behold you, our Savior ever true. 
Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do love you. We do adore you. And God, I pray right now that you would help us to turn our eyes to you. God, that you would help us to look to you fully, totally, completely, because nothing else in this world will ever satisfy us. There's nothing else in this world that we can base our lives on. So Lord, may we as a church family, may we be deeply and uniquely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to turn our eyes to you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus I pray all these things. Amen.